Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Global Tech Swamp. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here today with the EU team. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hi, Morgan. Hello. Hi, guys. Um, all right, so in this episode, we're going to be sitting down with Graham Tufault, our Senior Director for Public Policy in the U.S., um, and with our EU team to talk about the differences and similarities on either side of the Atlantic when it comes to regulating technology. We're also going to talk about what underpins the policymaking in both regions more generally. Uh, but first, tech history and the latest headlines in Brussels. Fifteen years ago, in December 2005, the European Union saw the launch of the country code top-level domain name uh, .eu. Since then, it has gained quite some visibility and magnitude with uh, over 3 million um, .eu domain currently registered. The uh, .eu domain is available to any person, company or organization from or based in the European economic area, meaning that's all the EU member states plus Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. It is also administered by EURID, a non-profit organization that's appointed um, by the European Commission. The domain was, name idea was launched in 2000 to emphasize how important the information society and electronic commerce um, are to Europe. And until then, firms wishing to take advantage of the single market either had to base their internet presence in one country or create websites in each of the EU countries they operated in. Today, the .eu domain name protects European citizens uh, and industry in the cyberspace. And for example, citizens' rights uh, as consumers and individuals are protected by European rules, standards and courts on .eu um, websites. With the UK having left the EU and UK businesses and citizens well, will now face new obstacles as they will no longer be able to obtain a .eu domain name after the 31st of December, uh, which is the end of the Brexit transition period. So that will create um, a bit of a mess. And that's all for tech history. And now it's time for Brussels Bytes. Those who were hoping the EU and the US would come up with a new data transfer agreement to replace the privacy shield will have to wait, according to the European Data Protection Supervisor. Following the decision of the European Court of Justice to invalidate the privacy shield over concerns about US surveillance practices, a new agreement will need to be negotiated. It's now looking like this will unfortunately take months or even years. The EDPS pointed out that it will be another month before the Biden administration takes office and likely several more months before it makes the privacy shield a priority. There are also still some questions pending regarding the new U.S. administration's willingness to potentially change the surveillance laws in question. In the meantime, thousands of companies will now have to use other data transfer tools like standard contractual clauses. We'll keep monitoring this debate and we'll update you as new developments happen. It seems that the EU will soon require that very large tech companies such as Facebook and Amazon uh, will have to take greater responsibility for policing the internet or face fines which are up to 6% of the turnover. A leaked draft text of the Digital Services Act, uh, which was seen by the Financial Times, would require big tech to vet third-party suppliers like the vendors who sell products on Amazon and share data with authorities and researchers on how they moderate illegal content online. 
These platforms will also have to ensure greater advertising transparency by letting users know when they are viewing an ad. The failure to comply will lead to fines, uh, the size of which will depend on the severity of the violation. And uh, well, we'll have more on this when the actual text comes out uh, next week on the 15th of December. The actor Ashton Kutcher unexpectedly intervened in the ongoing e-privacy debate in Brussels. He urged EU policymakers to agree on legislation that would allow companies to continue tracking child sexual abuse material online. EU institutions need to agree on the proposed text by December 21st. If they don't, scanning online material without user uh, consent will become illegal. Because of a change definition in a previous bill, the Telecommunication Code, internet communication services would then fall under the scope of another privacy law. Opponents of the proposed e-privacy legislation, on the other hand, are concerned that the safeguards included are not sufficient to protect users. Member states and the European Parliament are expected to start talks to reach a final agreement by the end of the year. France's data protection agency, the CNIL, just hit Google and Amazon with fines for dropping tracking cookies without consent. Google has been fined uh, a total of 100 million euros and Amazon 35 million. The law on tracking cookie consent has been in force in Europe for years um, and in October 2019 the European Court of Justice um, did a ruling that further clarified that consent must be obtained prior to storing or accessing non-essential cookies. Factors involved in determining the size of the fine included the reach of Google's search engine in France and the fact that its corporate practices affect almost 50 million people as well as the substantial profits it derives from advertising, which are linked to data generated by tracking cookies. And that's all for Brussels Bites. And now for the policy discussion. At the App Association, we are working with and for our members in different parts of the world, especially in the EU and the US, where much is happening in terms of tech regulation. So today we want to talk about the differences and similarities on either side of the Atlantic when policing tech, but also more generally on decision making in the EU and the US. And for that, I'm joined by Graham Dufault. Hi, Graham. Hi, nice to Graham's be here. Graham's our Senior Director for Public Policy in the US. And then we also have our EU membership manager, Morgan Taylor. Hello. So to both of you, as a general question, how do you think the respective governments of the EU and the US approach technology and regulating it? I think Morgan should go first. Yeah, well, actually, that's an interesting question because at the moment, I think we're seeing a, a bit of a, sh a shift in this approach. Um, in the EU, and by EU I mean the European institutions and not the individual uh, member states, um, there, there's been certainly realization that uh, it kind of missed the train uh, in terms of producing really successful digital companies in the recent years, um, especially platforms, search engines, uh, building technology, uh, 5G, for example. Um, and this regardless of the fact that, that there are incredible, there is incredible knowledge uh, and industry in Europe. And at the same time, other regions uh, such as Asia and the US are moving way faster. So I think previous approach in, in previous mandates was more linked to the idea that uh, EU was going to lead and compete by being a standard setter uh, in tech regulation 
with the moving first advantage and exporting its values on consumer protection, on privacy, and so on. And this was particularly the case, and Graham, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a bit of a regulatory vacuum in tech when it comes to tech policy in the US. Um, and Europe was really happy to fill this gap. And GDPR, so the General Data Protection uh, Regulation, is, is a very good example here, which uh, influences the rest of the world when it comes to regulating uh, regulation on data protection. And they have today the same approach uh, on artificial intelligence, having more ethical um, AI. However, this really for me, it didn't really solve the, the problem that it's still lagging behind uh, from the EU, uh, from the China, for example, and US, and when it comes to actually building the technology. And it became a matter of competitiveness. And so really this mandate uh, and the European Commission, uh, uh, the von der Leyen um, Commission is really to boost uh, its ability to compete with other regions on all things that's digital. And there's a kind of word for it, it's, it's called digital sovereignty. So I think that's, for me, that's what's happening at the moment. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds right to me. And I think, I think it is fair to say that there has been a, a regulatory vacuum in the United States, at least at the national level, especially when it comes to, um, when it comes to privacy, which is one of the uh, you know, main concerns that I think politicians in the United States, policymakers in the United States have when it comes to, to tech-driven products and services. The question is, uh, what are the new consumer harms that we are going to see developing as a result of the uh, introduction of new um, uh, and evolving uh, products and services coming from Silicon Valley, but also coming from um, all corners of the US? You know, in the App Association, we have um, almost all of our member companies are outside of, of Silicon Valley. Um, and they're creating really interesting uh, uh, software-driven things that um, I think uh, we want to we want to foster the development of, and we want to f uh, enable them to compete against bigger companies. So um, the philosophy, the overarching sort of philosophy difference between the EU and the US um, uh, sort of seems to be that the the EU is is not as worried about. Uh, intervene, having the government intervene where uh, there could be consumer harms that develop in the future. Um, and the U.S. has been, always been uh, um, very reticent to do that. Um, and there, there's a lot of reasons for it, but it, um, there, are, there are drawbacks to it and, and there are benefits to it. And I think the benefit is that you, you see a really vibrant and competition-driven um, uh, tech sector or, or set of sectors that that are um, that have tech components to them, uh, and you know the drawback, of course, is that the United States is not the leader when it comes to regulating the privacy uh, um, of, of these products and services as they're developing, and so they've they've sort of ceded leadership, um, and as a result, you see states stepping into the vacuum, and um, and certainly the EU has developed the leading approach with the general data protection regulation. Um, but I, I think, you know, in, in GDPR, you see a blanket ban on, on processing data about people. And then there are exceptions to that ban, you know, in the form of le uh, lawful bases for processing. And you wouldn't see that in the United States. You wouldn't see that approach, at least um, in a law of general applicability. 
in the U.S. I think there there are certainly situations in the U.S. where uh, the federal government has stepped in and said, well, there's a ban on certain kinds of market activity, uh, but that really only happens in specific, uh, highly regulated industries like healthcare and financial services. Um, so I, I think that that you know central provision of GDPR is sort of emblematic of the the difference in philosophy uh, between the U.S. And, and the EU. That's interesting, because I think also, like what Morgan mentioned, the, the GDPR is emblematic of this concept of um, digital sovereignty. So I want to ask you what that really is all about and how has that impacted tech policy making in Brussels? And to Graham, if you know that has been received in the US and how that's being perceived with policymakers here that the EU is banking on its own sovereignty here? So, like in the EU, I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, even if uh, London, Berlin, Paris, they all have their share of startups uh, that are worth over uh, a billion euros, but these figures are very low compared to Silicon Valley. And additionally to that, um, there's been a distrust uh, with many uh, within EU policy circles um, as regards to foreign slash US tech giants and the dominance over everything from social media, online search to cloud computing, e-commerce. And this growing awareness that from the EU and um, its regulators that whoever controls uh, digital technologies and data will increasingly be able to influence the economy, uh, society, political outcomes. Um, so this is something that's been very strong uh, in the way of, of, of shaping uh, the next EU industrial policy. And there's now a, a clear mandate and a clear willingness to have a coordinated approach uh, in the EU to reach more strategic autonomy from there. And this is something uh, the, the president has been uh, pushing for and is backed heavily by the, um, the commissioner for competition, Vestager. And uh, the French, uh, I think this is a very strong French agenda. And I think that before we've seen um, some degradation of the relationship between the, the US and the EU on trade policies uh, and so on during the Trump administration. And so this is why today kind of pushed you, um, the, the, the member states and especially uh, the French to say, okay, so we need to have our own uh, sovereignty, especially in, in, in digital. So, I mean, there's certain goals is to enhance digital champions um, and they're doing it by really supercharging the bloc's industrial policy uh, in fields such as artificial intelligence, quantum computing. I mean, the, um, the Gaia-X European cloud computing platform, uh, well, the, the German economic ministry uh, said straightforward is that Europe's digital infrastructures currently lie in the hands of smaller number of major non-European cooperation um, and that needs to change. The EU also wants to have a working digital single market uh, that doesn't fully exist. There are many different differences there. And lastly, the strategy includes like a tougher stand on, on foreign companies. Um, and there's a bit this willingness to curb uh, to curb the power of those companies um, uh, when it's for mergers uh, or the companies that are gatekeeping powers so it's um, 
this agenda clearly has an impact uh, on European uh, tech regulation and uh, this is going ahead even though with the pandemic it was a tiny bit slowed down but there's a wide range of proposals on the table uh, key initiatives like the digital services act and digital uh, markets act are coming up uh, soon um, and so Yes, well, the three areas of EU's regulatory strategy can be distinguished really by competition powers, uh, regulation, uh, and, and taxation, actually, also. So this is, uh, this is what the digital sovereignty is about. Yeah, and, and so to your question, Anna, about how is that perceived in, in the U.S. in all of its forms, competition, privacy regulation, taxation, um, I, I think the U.S.'s view is um, it's not uniform. Uh, I think it depends on, on which kinds of policymakers you would ask, uh, but it is evolving a bit. I, I think it used to be that uh, U.S. policymakers looked at uh, uh, attempts to to uh, to take on U.S. tech giants and, and big job creators in the U.S. as sort of protectionism that was to be avoided. And it was not something that U.S. policymakers looked at and said, that, that's a good approach. I think we ought to emulate it. But now, uh, I, I think you're starting to see an increasing comfort with, uh, with that a policy approach to take on tech giants, to take on Silicon Valley, to take on um, even smaller tech companies uh, in this space. And um, there, there is much more of a... Um, well, uh, you know, um, my voters, my constituents are actually going to reward me uh, for for t uh, taking decisive action on competition, on privacy. Um, I think in recent hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Judiciary Committee here in the U.S., um, you know, the, the lawmakers that have really um, uh, sort of uh, sternly um, reprimanded the CEOs of tech companies, uh, like Facebook and Twitter, have really been rewarded, um, even on those platforms, uh, by their constituents uh, for doing that. And so there is a um, there's much more of a call for, uh, for for government to reassert itself against the power of big tech companies, especially uh, the companies that are uh, that have social media platforms and that are part of uh, um, Americans' everyday lives. Um, and so the, the idea of digital sovereignty and, um, uh, you know, uh, protecting an individual's autonomy online, the ability for an individual to have control over their own data um, is, uh, is much more attractive, I think, to U.S. policymakers now as weighed against, um, you know, the need to... Uh, preserve the flexibility for these companies to experiment in new ways uh, to, to benefit the economy and to create jobs. Yeah, I think that's definitely true for on both ends, what you explained. Um, as if, you know, tech policy wasn't complex enough for anyone that doesn't work in this environment, it can be really hard to understand how all the nuances of policymaking work and how it can impact policy. And like we already mentioned, the GDPR is a big example um, of a policy that's had a global impact. And I'm wondering, 
if if you could explain to our listeners, Morgan, how it works in practice in Brussels with all the member states coming together and how do the Brussels institutions influence the tech policy agenda? Sure, do you have a, a couple of hours for me to do that? Actually, it will require a whole course. Um, yeah, it is It is quite complex and uh, for everyone, uh, even EU citizens. Uh, I think you really have to work on, on those issues on a daily basis to, to fully grasp uh, the nuances. Um, because it's linked to the, the structure of the EU itself. Uh, it's a bit of a reverse federalism without being a confederalism. It's um, member states delegated a number of competences to the EU, uh, not all, for example, taxation or employment, that's uh, still at member state level. But the core um, function of the EU is to create and ensure the, the functioning of a single market. Um, and therefore, uh, the EU has full competences there, which includes also uh, competition policy uh, to make sure that competition stays in the, in, the, in the single market. So to explain really very quickly, uh, how all of this works. There's the European Commission, which is the executive branch, um, which proposes uh, law and represents the interest of Europe, of the European Union. And so commissioners are supposed to le leave their national preferences or the nationality at the door and really represents uh, the European Union. But in practice, that's not really the case. And the fact that we have 27 uh, commissioners is already a hint that nationality is still important. And we talked about uh, France before, but we can say today that the French commissioner for uh, the internal ma market, Thierry Breton, is pushing uh, an agenda that's quite close, close to uh, the French one. And so that's for the commission. But then there's also the other two institutions that are key. It's the council, which represents the member states, and then the European uh, Parliament, which represents the people, uh, directly elected by people. So the degree uh, of influence varies, but it all depends on this mix of the political uh, orientations of those uh, elected representative, also the cultural preferences, the vision of what Europe will be if they come from a smaller country, like for example, I would say Estonia and Belgium don't have at all the same approach to, to Europe and also to, to tech than, for example, um, I would say Spain or, or, or Italy. And they all chip in. And in the end, we talked about the general protection, uh, the, the GDPR, which is a good example. Um, it's more on a consensus based where you will end up with a regulation that has uh, exemptions um, where in the GPR we want to have a one-stop shop uh, for um, complaints for uh, for data protection uh, authorities but in the end this was a very long discussion and we ended up with a, a patchwork of different ideas to try to make everybody happy so all of this results in, in the end, it takes a very long time. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the things that's to take into account when we talk about tech policy in Europe. It, it does take time and tech moves much, way faster than, than regulation. Uh, the GDPR started in 2012, it was agreed on in 2016 and it entered into force in 2018. That's, uh, that's already six years. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, I, I think, I hope I made it clear, but that's uh, all the things that uh, make Europe quite unique uh, when it legislates. Yeah, 
So the bottom line is it's complicated and it takes a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm imagining, you know, the U.S. is a similar level of complexity. Um, and you already mentioned this, Graham, um, that local, um, we were seeing more action locally. So how about um, tech policy in different states, very prominently, for example, California, um, driving national debates? Yeah. And, and, and based on... Um Morgan's description of, of how the EU handles these issues and and deals with sort of the competing uh, priorities of, of various member states. There's um, there's a lot of similarities, I think, between you know how how the United between how the EU handles these kinds of policies and and what happens in practice in the U.S. Um, you mentioned you know how how is California addressing uh, uh, tech policy issues and. They really have taken a lead role um, on the national stage in privacy with the California Consumer uh, Privacy Act, um, and then its successor, the CPRA, which makes some uh, some amendments to the to the CCPA, the initially enacted um, California privacy law, uh, and some clarifications. Uh, so, uh, you know, at at the national level, it has been really difficult for Congress to establish. Uh, a set of privacy rules generally across state lines um, and uh, that there's a lot of reasons for that but part of it is that you know um, most of these privacy bills would amend the Federal Trade Commission Act and the in the FTC is the main privacy regulator um, you could say in the United States the national privacy enforcement body um, and that uh, that law has really general jurisdiction over a lot of different industries that aren't otherwise regulated uh, by by other you know similar statutes. So it's pretty much everything except for financial services um, and healthcare, and then some education uh, activities. So um, it's a it's a really broad uh, set of industries that are at the table when when Congress is uh, trying to work on something of such general applicability. Um, and also, as Morgan mentioned, you're talking about regulating a set of technologies that's evolving really fast and much more quickly than uh, Congress can react, uh, certainly, and, and also regulators. Regulators are, are also sort of um, not able to, to very, in an agile way, respond to evolving harms. And so, um, you know, in, in the United States, when it comes to sort of tech-related tech policy, um, those, those big federal bills tend to be pretty difficult to um, come to a consensus on, um, and uh, uh, you end up with uh, states taking a lead role. So the, the, the risk there, of course, is that if you have a lot of states jumping in and developing uh, uh, sets of policies around privacy, for example, that sort of are, are slightly different from each other, or even if they're not in conflict, to the extent that they are inconsistent with each other, they become pretty tough to to comply with. And any uh, one of our member companies that's doing business in one state is probably doing business in a lot of other states as well. Um, and and you know the the vast majority of them are also operating uh, internationally. So um, it, it becomes an issue, and it really is important for us to have. Uh, a single federal set of rules, especially on, on, on privacy. Um, and on, uh, when it comes to competition issues, uh, I think there, there, are similar, there are similar questions. 
Um, but uh, uh, I think pri the privacy debate is a little bit more mature um, than the antitrust one uh, here in the United States, just because um, uh, we just recently had a report come out of the House Judiciary Committee on a bunch of you know competition issues related to tech. Um, it's going to be a while before those sort of defined questions, um, which many of which sort of emulate what Europe is doing, um, uh, are, are sort of mature in the national debate. So that's why I sort of look at privacy and, and use privacy as a use case uh, instead of other sort of policy areas when it comes to tech. Okay, yeah. Um, it seems there are some similarities, but also quite some drifting apart on tech um, policy between the EU and the US. Um, so I'm wondering, do you guys see the change of administration in the US having any effect on the differences in the US and European approaches? And how might those be bridged? Or are we moving farther apart in the next couple of years as well? And this is my last question. <laughs> uh, maybe I quickly go first. Like, first of all, reacting to what Graham was saying before, um, I think it's important. The, the the question of fragmentation and having, for example, in the U.S. Uh, states taking the lead um, on on different files, and will end up maybe with a patchwork of different uh, legislation. That's something that's very important for us as well in the EU and important for our members. I think that's something that we share uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Is that we need to make this as easy as possible for 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 and the biggest market possible. I would say to to, to for our members um, that in the end are active uh, um, in Europe and in the US. Um, and so our role there uh, is to really make sure that the harmonization um, uh, works um, and where it should work. Um, but. So to answer your question, in uh, Anna, uh, I think uh, in terms of uh, sorry, I already forgot the question <laughs> so I'm talking about, but the change of administration, how maybe this would change um, what we're looking for. I think this, as I explained before, there's a bit of this cautious optimism uh, towards it. I think uh, EU really welcomes the change uh, of administration because there have been a bit of damages. Uh, I mean. Um, especially in trade policy, so uh, the fact that dialogue is, is starting uh, again, but at the same time, um, there is this digital sovereignty, this uh, this need for strategic independence, um, and this is something that many uh, will want to continue, uh, uh, regardless of. Uh, of what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, then at the same time, I think, uh, but there are things where there needs to be conversions. Uh, I'm thinking about the privacy shield, uh, the fact that European Court of Justice uh, struck down this agreement that allow uh, small businesses uh, to transfer data uh, across the Atlantic in a streamlined and non-expensive way. With this uh, not there anymore, um, there needs to be uh, a move on both sides to make sure that they can negotiate uh, a new agreement because this is really damaging for, for, for small smaller businesses that have been using this agreement. Um, so this is something, an area of action where we uh, very much look forward uh, to uh, a bit of, yeah, a, a change in uh, 
maybe the general administration, I don't know, but uh, Graham, you might have a different idea. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for um, on, on this side of the Atlantic, we're, we're cautiously optimistic as well that there can be um, more of a, an outward looking uh, focus on uh, tech driven issues and, and tech policies so that um, we are going to be more of a player on the international stage here in the U.S. and that we can also be more involved in multilateral discussions and in, in bilateral discussions. I, I don't think the concept of nationalism is necessarily going away. And certainly, you know, back in the 2016 campaign, both um, both candidates for president decided that they didn't like the, uh, the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Part Partnership. And so constituencies on both the Republican Dem Democratic sides are sort of pushing their politicians um, toward the, the notion that um, you know, the U.S. first and uh, we don't want to uh, subvert our own interests in, in, the in, in, a, in a broader interest of global comity. Um, I think uh, on, on the whole, um, uh, that kind of um, uh, uh, closing off of the borders uh, hurts us. And my hope is that we can uh, continue to have more of a, a global and, and trade focused approach um, and restart bilateral, multilateral negotiations when it comes to, to tech issues like data localization, um, like privacy issues, as, as uh, Morgan mentioned, the um, EU-US privacy shield um, is really was really important for, for many of our member companies. And, um, and uh, the alternatives are really expensive and, 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 and tough for, for smaller companies in particular. And so being able to transfer data across borders is really important. And there ought to be um, some sort of convergence on the approach to privacy. And I think you see that with most of the bills that have a chance of moving forward in, in Congress and that are championed by the leaders of the committees of jurisdiction in Congress look a little bit like, like a GDPR. And it, part of that is because, um, uh, you know, consumers like the idea of, of having consumer rights. And um, another part of it is that internationally, you know, U.S. companies are, are already complying with GDPR and the United States ought to keep up. Uh, so uh, I think con convergence is, is good for a, for a lot of different reasons. And uh, I think we should continue to push back on proposals that tend to balkanize the Internet and tend to um, uh, require companies to maintain uh, data storage in a particular country, for example, there are a bunch of new proposals in, in Congress, for example, that would say, you know, if you're an app developer and you happen to um, uh, um, collect data and then it is stored overseas, you have to make all these disclosures about, you know, where it's stored and um, and uh, that kind of policy, that kind of philosophy, sort of ignores the fact that, uh, you know, data follows the person that's that's uh, to which it pertains and cloud storage enables people to, to have locally cached information about uh, about themselves and and um, have it close at their fingertips uh, for convenience so um, you know making making it hard to have a uh, global global data flows um, 
is not in the U.S.'s best interest and it's not in U.S. consumers' best interest. So, um, you know, my hope is that uh, uh, we will continue to um, uh, to be able to, to facilitate global uh, data flows while protecting um, the sovereign interests of, of our nations as well as the privacy of our citizens. Um, and uh, the way we do that is by being really conscientious about the privacy laws that we have on the books here, the surveillance laws that we have on the books here, um, and, uh, and also um, being very intentional about our, our negotiations uh, with our trading partners um, and, and wanting to, to forge those relationships and, and rekindle those relationships. So um, that's going to be our focus uh, uh, for sure going into 2021. Yeah, so hopefully better times to come. Um, and that wraps up our policy discussion. Thank you both so much for being here and sharing your expertise with us. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, now it is time for Random Identifier. Um, Morgan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, um, so me, it's a, it's a very simple one. It's the one, it's the book I'm reading at the moment, and I thought it was, a, it was quite nice. It's called Middle England by Jonathan Coe, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a trilogy, and uh, I'm reading the last book without knowing there were two other ones before. But yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it talks about, uh, well, Middle England, and uh, <laughs> through the eyes of different, like a... A family, different characters, but what's nice is that it subtly um, explains all this national identity crisis um, in, in the UK, which actually eventually led to the EU referendum. And um, it's it's quite nicely done, and um, it's yeah, I'm only mid. Um, midway so i can't really tell you anything more about it but i thought it was a, it was a, 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 a it's a nice read so i i recommend it so far that's awesome um i am gonna add it to my list i'm trying to get to 60 books by the end of this year and i only have ah, like four go. more to read so maybe i'll throw it on my list <laughs> <laughs> um all right anna how about you what do you have for us um yeah another month in 2020 means another month of consuming random content on streaming platforms of um, course and in December, it's been various holiday movies for me. So the ones I particu- uh, particularly liked so far were The Holiday on Netflix and Happiest Season on Hulu, which is unfortunately only available in the U.S. Um, and I don't really have much to say about them. I thought they were both very <laughs> cute and entertaining, and I'd recommend them to everyone listening. <laughs> yeah, that's what I love about holiday movies. They just like, you know, they're like yeah. a little, it's like an hour and 30 minutes where you just yeah. like get to let someone else just direct what you think about for an hour and 30 minutes, you know? Exactly. I love no it. No deep analysis other than happy feelings afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> um, that actually matches my random identifier in terms of happy feelings. Um, so there is an Instagram that I follow um, called Accidentally Wes Anderson that I encourage everyone to follow. Mm. It's like these really beautiful <laughs> but a little bit funny pictures um, of like sites around the world. And um, they're sort of inspired by, like, Wes Anderson films. Like, I think he has a very specific point of view. Anyway, um, there's a book that the Instagram people put out called also accidentally Wes Anderson. It's by Wally Koval. 
Um, and I got it thinking that it was just going to be sort of like a photo book, um, which it is, but it also happens to be, um, they kind of talk about the site, like each site, like each photograph, they kind of give you a little background on like where it is and, and why it's special and that sort of thing. And I've like learned stuff uh, since reading it. It's really delightful. So I highly recommend. It's also really beautiful. So it's like a good last minute gift to give, I would say. Um, anyway, so that's my random identifier is that I highly recommend both the Instagram accidentally Wes Anderson and also the book, uh, that has come since the Instagram. Um, yeah. That's so cool. It, yeah. it does look beautiful. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, Same. So, I'm doing it now. Yeah. And the it's photos, a really good gift. The photos are really gorgeous too. And like, yeah. um, it gives you sort of like a, it's like a friendly, happy feeling of sort of like getting to see parts of the world you wouldn't normally see. Um, and it's really cool too because they actually got to go to Antarctica. So there are some really gorgeous photos wow. from Antarctica mm. um, that are they make me want to go there a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um, yeah, ten out of ten would recommend. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, and that is all for random identifier. All right, we have reached the end of Tech Swamp. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this EU edition. If you want further information, you can go to our website and our podcast page where we'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to be updated with all our latest podcasts and uh, continue to follow us on a daily basis on Twitter at EUAppMakers. Uh, I was going to say .com, but that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Until next time. And happy holidays. Bye. Bye. Have happy holidays. Nice ho-